achievement. He'd be the greatest British Olympian to receive as many medals in the swimming since, well, since the whole thing started. And so it's very encouraging. We're sixth place in the medals table. And for a country of our size and with the challenges we face, then that surely is encouraging. A number of years ago, way back in the 2000s, how it seems a different world then, I had the opportunity to go with the Scottish Bible Society in the footsteps of St. Paul. We visited Greece and dipped into Turkey, and it was a most helpful um, tour. I remember that, and, and indeed many of the things I saw there really help us to understand and hopefully help me to share with you the understanding of, of books like the Book of Romans. But we also took a detour, I have to say a detour that didn't go down too well with um, many people on the bus. I was, in those days, one of the youngest. Is that possible to believe? And there was quite a large contingent of Freekirk people there, and the Freekirk in those days, back in the 2000s, was a bit stauncher than everybody is nowadays. And when the tour guide informed that we were going to Mount Olympus, to what was thought in the ancient world as the centre of the world and where the Olympic Games started and came from, well, there was a very tangible sense of disapproval um, on the bus. Why we were taking this detour? Um, what had that got to do with following the Apostle Paul? and going to Corinth or Thessalonica or Athens or Philippi or the other places we went to see. But I have to say, and there were one or two of us rebels in the bus. Can you believe I'm a rebel? <laughs> there were one or two of us in the bus who actually thought it was great that we were going to visit this. The fact, I have to be honest with you, this is, we got off the bus. I'll explain in a minute what we went to see. I have to say, I was off the bus and up a big hill and seeing the amphitheater where the Olympic Games started before some of the old dears were actually off the bus. So that just explains what a challenge it was for, for, for some who were present. But when we were there, we saw the, it set in the, the, well, the hall, in a sense, of a, of a mountain. Um, you start off with various temples dedicated to various gods, which, interesting enough, the ruins of, were now inscribed from way back in the 3rd and 4th century with crosses, and so that was, it was reclaimed by the church when the church, of course, began to grow in Greece in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century. You journeyed through the various temples, and the road led you on a, on a spiritual journey till you got to the amphitheater, to where the, the races and the activities would take place, set up in the hill. I mean, it was beautiful. It was also exhausting to get up. They wouldn't like trying that now. That was a good few years ago. But there was also a museum at the side of the ruins. And when we went into the museum, what met you just inside the entrance way in this lovely museum was this massive figure of a human being, of a man. It had been cast in bronze. It had been dug up many years before. And because it was bronze and had been lying on the ground for so many years, there were big bits that were obviously missing. So it was, it was on a frame in order to enable to see the outline. But even in the remnants that were there, and the verdigree, if it was green now, of course it wouldn't have been green when it was made, there was this, I have to say, very impressive human form. And I mean that in every way possible. You can think about that for the rest of the service. Uh, and, and he was standing, um, lightly clad. He had a kind of tunic on. He was a chariot racer. And he was standing, and obviously he would have been holding, there would have been at the entrance to the, the Olympus, there would have been two large statues, probably two large chariots with these figures on them. And so he was, he was holding a, a, a rein, of what would have been a leather rein. He had a spear in his hand, and he was facing the future and the race with great confidence. An impressive 
piece of art. Despite the fact, of course, that some folk, and I can understand why, particularly thinking of the verses we're going to look at, muttering about how this was godless paganism, worshipping created things rather than the creator, and also, as I said, very sensual, I would have to say. But nonetheless, that is the context, although that was the Greek world, the Greek or Roman world is the context in which the New Testament is set, especially the, the letters, Paul's letters, and the letters written by Peter and John and others as well. And a world which, and some of us have been on holiday, and we visited Ephesus, we went to the Odeon, I don't mean the one in the centre of Glasgow and Renfield Street where we used to do our winching, but I mean the original Odeon Theatre in the centre of Ephesus, I've seen that, an impressive public building, a theatre. Or we've never visited the ruins of Pompeii or other places round about there and seen how, despite the awful cataclysm that took place when Vesuvius exploded, there was great order and structure. There was corner shops, there was public baths, there was all sorts of types of housing. Or we may simply have gone down south on holiday and come across a scene down south of a field, a muddy field, and in the midst of the muddy field, as has been excavated, a beautiful floor, mosaic floor of a Roman villa when the Romans were here in Britain back in the early part of the third, second, third, and fourth centuries. And certainly for the passerby, for the person who went to one of the great cities of the empire of the Roman world, things would have looked, well, looked amazing. A bit like nowadays going to visit some of the great cities of the world, whether it be New York or, or Beijing or anywhere else. And we would have seen these public buildings. We would have had the sense of, of order and structure and, and everything being in place. But of course, you don't need me to tell you that behind the scenes, all of that, but despite the impression of order and power and amazement that that creates, many things were wrong. And you maybe don't also need me to remind you that history tells us that often various totalitarian societies seek to use public buildings, the, the impression of power and glory and honor, in order to subdue people and not just their own people, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and dare I say China today. And the use of that to impress, but also to impose. Well, that's the setting that Paul is thinking about. Although he's not in Rome as he writes this, he had visited many of these sites that we're talking about, hence the reason why we went on a Scottish Bible Society tour of Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and all these other places. He, he had already seen, indeed the New Testament tells us that he was, uh, although he was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was also acquainted with the Roman world. He was a Roman citizen. And he appealed to Roman law and recognized its place in bringing order into society. And he called for the church to pray for the emperor, for Caesar, and all those in authority that there might be stability and peace and structure. So that, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, that the gospel might have the opportunity to spread and to grow, not in the midst of anarchy and chaos, but in that peaceful environment, the gospel might have the opportunity to spread and grow. But certainly Paul, and indeed the early church, was not taken in by all that appears brilliant and shiny. 
in the same way as that statue in Olympus once had shone brilliantly as bronze, and the sun would have reflected, and you would have seen it, and it would just have overawed you by its beauty, but now it was tarnished and broken and green and everything else, and very fragile. The frame inside was what held it together. So Paul could see, beyond all that appeared glorious, the very fragility and shallowness and weakness of his contemporary world. And I would suggest this morning that surely we as believers living in the West today, and it's not really primarily for me to point the finger at other parts of the world, but as we live in the West, then yes, there are many things that have impressed us over these past months. The vaccine rollout and everything else, and the way the National Health Service, despite its challenges and struggles, has coped with things, and the way that teachers and the education department have coped with things under the midst pressure. There are many things which are positive, and I wouldn't want to take anything away from that, but I certainly would have to suggest that there are many other things which reveal that beneath the surface, and perhaps nobody not even very far beneath the surface, there is great fragility, great weakness, great and many issues within our contemporary society. Why is that? Well, Paul here, after speaking about how he's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. As Paul has soundly affirmed his confidence in the God of Jesus Christ, the way that God has entered into our world in that righteous one, Jesus, he now goes on to explain why that is so Vital. I'm going to read one or two references this morning because they can do it better than I can. I'm going to read how someone suggests how we can understand these opening verses. So Paul says, for instance, just look at these opening verses. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a bit of a question and answer session. And Paul makes this statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And perhaps we can understand somebody say, well, why, why not, Paul? Why are you not ashamed? After all, compared to many of the other philosophies, I mean, to talk about a crucified God, a Jesus who's on a cross, all of that, I mean, why are you not ashamed? That's pretty poor. That's not very impressive. That's not an Olympian figure facing with a, you know, the future with confidence. And Paul responds by saying, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the questioner says, well, how? How does that make sense? How does that happen? Well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to get a handle on this, Paul. And Paul responds by saying, because in the gospel, our righteousness from God is revealed. That is God's way of justifying sinners. Well, the questioner says, that's a very interesting theoretical and philosophical statement. And of course, in the ancient world, people loved the debate. We went to Athens and we saw, you know, the hill in Athens where people would stand and they would spend, you know, they just listened to public debates like speakers' conference and corner and Hyde Park. You know, it was, it, was, it was the way to, you know, if you were in, you went along and listened to the latest philosopher or, or stoic thinker and you would be titivated by that. And so they can imagine the person say, well, you know, well, why, why, why is this philosophical statement important? Paul answers, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And the questioner says, well, you know, getting a wee bit kind of heavy here, Paul. 
you know, I mean, this is getting a wee bit kind of, you know, all this talk about wrath and suppression, you know, how, you know, come on. How have people suppressed the truth? Because, Paul says, what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. So Paul here is challenging the idea that everything is okay, that we'll get there, we'll manage, that science, technology, the advancement of humanity, the things that we can do and achieve, the things that we can build or own or possess, that is the way to save the world. Paul's saying no. Actually, he says, if you look at these things, you actually see just how desperate the world really is. So let's just dip into some of these verses. I appreciate that's quite a long introduction, but, well, I don't know if anything else for my help, it gets us to the point of trying to at least see what he's saying. Look at what he says. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God. Well, let's be honest. Paul just goes right in there. Even within the church, we live in a day where for many Christians, the concept of God being angry makes us uncomfortable. Now, that could be for various reasons, partly because we get angry and we think, well, God could possibly be like that. There's no much of a God. We lose the rag. We lose the plot. We get stirred up. We become impassioned and often unreasonable and irrational. If that's the wrath of God, well, that's certainly no picture of God. Of course, that's not what Paul is saying there. And then there are those who would say, but let's be honest, that's an Old Testament concept. You know, the ground opens up and people get swallowed up. Fire falls from heaven and people get burnt up and, and all that kind of stuff. That's the Old Testament. But the New Testament is all about love. Look at the life of Jesus. Look how he reached out to people and drew them in and cared for people and healed the sick and, and all the rest of it. Surely the God we come before is a God of compassion, of love. Well, that's true. But Jesus also, if you remember, got angry. And what did he get angry about? Well, first of all, he got angry at the plight of humanity. His emotions, his, his emotions were stirred as he saw the plight of humanity. He wept over Jerusalem. He was impassioned. He wept to the tomb of Lazarus. We're told his heart was stirred. And actually in the gospel stories, it literally means that his bowels were getting twisted. And any of us who ever have that experience in real life will know how painful and how demanding and commanding that is. Jesus was filled with passion. And he became angry at those things and those people who prevented the poor and the sick and the outcast and the stranger from meeting with God supremely. You saw him in the temple courts where he overturned the tables. He picked up a whip. He shouted at the Pharisees and condemned them as sepulchers of corruption and of destruction. Why? Because that system, those rituals, these people were suppressing the truth about God and had turned religion not into a door that led people into life 
but as a pit that led people into despair and death. And Paul here is saying that that same God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, precisely because he has a love for his creation, precisely because he's passionate about the lost state of humanity and its brokenness and its need. And we see that in the story of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God was grieved by that. But what does he do? He clothes them. And when he sends them out from his presence, what does he do? He makes sure they're provided for. He could not stand sin, corruption in his presence, but he still had a passion for the people that left his presence so the God here burns in righteous indignation at the very things which destroy or damage humanity and their ability to know God. Let me read on. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Let me read together again some references from this book. The commentator, just wanting to draw for this idea of God revealing his nature from in various ways, says this. He, he, he's speaking about the satellite detection of the birth bangs of the universe, the big bang theory. I don't mean the program in E4, I mean the reality and the science. Um, and one of uh, a contributor to a debate in the paper at the time, the Guardian newspaper wrote this after hearing and seeing pictures of what they thought was the dawn of, of creation, the blast of light, which is still there. He wrote, the comment, a contributor wrote this. It's difficult to know what the appropriate reaction to such mind-expanding discoveries should be, except to get down on one's knees in total humility and give thanks to God, or the Big Bang, or both, for cunningly contriving to allow this infinitesimal part of the universe called Earth to be bestowed with something called air. Let me read that again. It's difficult to know what the appropriate reaction to such mind-expanding discoveries should be, except to get down on one's knees in total humility and give thanks to God, or Big Bang, or both, for cunningly contriving to allow this infinitesimal part of the universe called Earth to be bestowed with something called air. And then the writer goes on to say the opposite end. He had a consultant surgeon writing to him, saying this, I am filled with awe, with the same awe and humility, when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence for an capital ultimate, capital P, purpose. Then an anthropologist, someone who actually started off as a secular humanist and became an active Christian, wrote this. He had, I have found, he said, a worldwide moral sense in human beings so that, although conscience is, of course, to some extent conditioned by culture, it still testifies to everybody everywhere, both that there is a difference between right and wrong 
and the evil desires to be punished. Let me read that again. I have found a worldwide moral sense in human beings so that, although consciousness is, of course, to some extent conditioned by culture, it still testifies to everybody everywhere, both that there is a difference between right and wrong and that evil deserves to be punished. Creation, declaring the glory of God. Many of us will watch programs where people will come on. There'll be travel programs. Or we watch Country File, don't we, on a Sunday night. And other programs, and people marvel at creation. Marvel at the beauty of it and the complexity of it. Yes, it's not perfect. It's fallen like humanity. It's flawed. But nonetheless, we'll marvel at all of that. And yet, how rarely does anyone, especially nowadays on public channels and television, anyone give even a hint of ascribing glory to the Creator? In fact, if you listen today to many of these programs, there actually is worship of nature itself rather than the creator. I'm old enough to remember the 1980s and 90s and the building of what even then was described as the cathedrals of the late 20th century, the large shopping centers, and how people regularly went there to worship, to worship the god Mammon to bow down and to give over their dues, i.e. their money, and to acquire more possessions. The very fact that that so-called God, many of these shopping centers are now empty, derelict, um, are being used for other purposes, is of course a sign to me as a believer that these gods, as the prophet Isaiah said, these gods that you bow down to worship are no gods at all because they're silent, they're dumb, and they don't last. But nonetheless, people did bow down to worship. One of the great concerns, and again, if you're bored one day and you want to listen back to sermons over the last 15 months, one of my great concerns from the very beginning is how some in the medical scientific community and some of their statements and some of the statements of politicians associated with them is that our Savior is in them or in their answers, in the vaccine or whatever. Again, not decrying anything away from the wonder of science and the great blessings they've been. Although it's good for us to remember that large parts of the world don't have those blessings and are having to face the consequence of us having so much and them once again having so little. But nonetheless, that subtle drawing of attention to self. At our devotional this past week, we were looking at the story, not of Nebuchadnezzar, but of his son and of what happened to his son who glorified in himself and set himself up and then saw that hand writing. Remember the story? That, can I commend you? It's encouraging to see the folk coming to the devotional during the week, but I continue to commend that to you, especially for those of you, I'm looking here at the camera quite deliberately, especially those of you who are a bit anxious about coming to church for various reasons, there's your opportunity, Tuesday morning, Wednesday evening, Thursday morning, to still attend the Lord's house and be part in some way of his people. 
But remember the story, the, the hand appears on the wall and Daniel's come in. And what does Daniel say? Well, the various words, the three words, many, tekel, perish. This is what he said. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And we read that Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he's proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's all very well. Daniel said, you can keep your stuff. I'm not bothered. But he got it anyway. And that very night, we're told, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain. Why? Because he thought he was God. See, that I in the center of sin, that arrogance and elevation, either of ourselves or of anything that humanity might say, we can answer the problems. We can solve. My friends, History tells us, the evidence in our daily newspapers tell us that the more we dig, we simply dig the hole deeper. Is the world better than it was 10 years ago? Ask the people of Afghanistan what they say about that. Yes, we can have great advances in science, but it's partial and it simply encourages greed for us to consume more of these advances while the rest of the world struggles and starves. Look at the breakdown in family life. The queue of people to see counsellors, the young people who have committed suicide. I was buying a, not buying a car, I wish I was buying a car, but I wasn't buying a car. I had my car in the garage just the other week, and the poor girl opened her heart and told me that her boyfriend, the father of her child at 26, had walked out in front of a car in Bothwell in order to end his life. That, my friends, is the evidence of a godless, broken world. And what's the, what's the problem? I. And those with all their clever arguments. It's all very well staying in the home counties, in a big house, and telling people to stay in their houses. When you've got a garden in seven rooms or ten rooms, and you can wander about the place. Tell some young woman with three kids up a multi-story block of flats. And the truth is suppressed. And the gospel is denied. And the church remains silent and we rub our hands and God's wrath is being revealed. And what that means and how that is seen, well, that's next week. Let's pray together. Our hearts are troubled. We see the need and the brokenness. And like you, Lord Jesus, as you wept over Jerusalem, we grieve. And we pray that in your mercy, eyes would be opened. Hearts softened, minds engaged, and the truth of Jesus revealed. And so may the words of my mouth that I have just spoken and the meditations of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.